0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or Sleepnumber.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents the July Crisis Anniversary Project. A day-by-day account of the events that occurred 100 years ago. Epilogue The result of the July crisis was a spectacle of slaughter on a level nobody had or could have foreseen. It was a war that was beyond the imagination of any European statesman. The plans of every power went up in smoke, and improvisation became the order of the day. By November 1914, Russia had lost some 330,000 men in their German campaigns, meaning that they ceased to be a threat to Germany thereafter, while Austria-Hungary buckled under the Russian offensives in its Carpathian mountains. The real German goal... The wheeling turn of the German forces through Belgium that had made the declaration of war necessary was stopped with the miracle in the Marne, in a combination of German withdrawal to the Eastern Front, the presence of British forces, and the superhuman resilience of the French, who lost an atrocious amount of men in the opening weeks of the First World War. The Eastern and Western Fronts were soon joined by the Italians, Romanians, and Greeks on the side of the Allies, and the Ottomans and Bulgarians on the side of the Central Powers. These new fronts provided new theatres where inexperienced statesmen who thought they knew the realities of warfare planned grand strategies that served only to send hundreds of thousands of more men to their deaths. Whether high up in the Alps, in the desert wastelands of Africa, or in the no-man's-land of Flanders, war was soon being fought on a scale that the industrialised nations of the world had apparently worked towards for the past century, with little idea how to use their killing machines, or why they were even there in the first place. So rapidly had the declarations of war come, after the apparent quiet of the month of July, and so horrific was the opening month of August for all involved, that the question of why soon became a non-issue. Whatever had caused the powers to declare war in the first place, the war soon became locked up in a rhetoric that painted a good and bad side, a civilization and a barbarian, a side that God supported, and a side that God was against. The expected mobile warfare and the upper classes' obsession with cavalry was soon proven false and useless, as trench warfare set in. With the caustic conditions of all sides, the need for manpower became inherent to the war's continuation, and the need to fight for one's country and mobilise the public against the enemy soon became the primary aim of every involved party. The war was the most total experience the world had ever yet seen. It was felt everywhere, even in the states that claimed neutrality, and especially if these states happened to reside on the European continent. It gave empires a chance to mobilise their far-flung cousin populations, and wage war against the enemy on a scale not seen or remembered in history. As the war raged, so did atrocities, as ethnicities forced into cooperation with a master empire that had chafed rose up, or were targeted by the government for extinction as enemies of the state the Ottoman-sponsored Armenian, Greek, and Assyrian genocides would remove the image of an honourable war, just like the German perpetration of murderous rampages in Belgium provided yet another tragic tool that the Allies could use against Germany. Though few remembered or even realised how it had begun in the late summer of 1914, many felt confident that they knew when it would end in fact so confident were some that the war would be over not just before christmas but before they could even reach it that the eagerness to serve surpassed all government expectation in a wave of euphoric patriotism did the citizens of europe commit themselves to war it would not be until the soldiers actually reached the front that they would realize what the reality was for all their technology reasons ethics and understanding of science the powers of the world in 1914 were all proven hopelessly ill-informed about the way the war would go. With the exception of brief, wasteful, meaningless offensives, the Western Front would remain largely static for the next three and a half years. On the Eastern Front, the warfare was more mobile, and the Russian steamroller that the Central Powers had so expected and feared ran out of steam in the opening months. Russia was keenly on the defensive after its initial offensives, as clueless commander after clueless commander wasted the lives of Russia's poorest and most vulnerable for the sake of something no Russian, save the well-informed, understood. At first, everyone imagined that the war would be with China. Russia had pushed too far into Mongolia, and China had declared war. Then another rumour did the rounds. It is with England. It must be with England. This view prevailed for some time. Only after four days did something like the truth come to us. And then, nobody believed it. These were the words of the English traveller Stephen Graham who had the misfortune of being present in a Cossack settlement in the interior of Russia, when news of the war reached him. The war soon became a way of life, dominating all aspects of the civilised states of Europe. Be it in the quest to get food, the propaganda that greeted them in their daily newspapers, or the urgent requests that they be pressed into service, the war never left the lives of Europe's citizens once it entered them. The euphoria that greeted the news of war was a spectacle to behold but it was not universal. Previous marches and rallies in favour of peace and European unity had roused concerns in European states because of their message. Socialism appeared to be taking root. On the eve of war, France's leading socialist pacifist had embraced his German counterpart, and the crowds that observed this spectacle cheered. Hours later, this Frenchman would be dead, and his German ally would soon be captured in the wave of war enthusiasm to the extent that he approved the German Chancellor's request for war credits as resoundingly as his ideological opponents. Locked in trench warfare in the West, in entrenched mountain positions above sea level and across open steppes, the people of the 20th century were about to experience something they hadn't known in their lifetimes. Wars had of course been fought in recent memory. Many in France and Germany had lived through the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. Many in Russia remembered the wars against Turkey in the same decade and certainly remembered the war against Japan in 1904. Britain's population had been drip-fed news of imperial wars against ungrateful populations for the past century, the most recent one being the more polarising adventure in South Africa. Italy had launched its recent war in Libya in 1911. The Greeks and Ottomans themselves had fought a war too. The Balkans had been a hotbed of conflict for the past 50 years and only recently had dramatically expanded in scope and implications for the rest of Europe. Austria-Hungary may have remembered the war it fought against its now ally Prussia in 1866, some may even remember remembered the loss against France in 1859. Both of those experiences had been catastrophic for the Habsburgs, yet she had looked to the war with Serbia as a chance to exercise her demons and come out better than before. Events would soon shatter her dreams. For all their lamenting about the Entente's head start and mobilisation, Germany was able to mount a remarkable double offensive in the opening year of the war, setting the tone for a defence in the west and offence in the east for the remainder of it. Significantly, the very opposite of the Schlieffen plan that the German chief of staff had obliterated world opinion for the sake of. As the war raged, it consumed the lives and shattered the expectations of those that were forced through it. Going over the top, losing friends, loved ones, relatives, not hearing from home, worrying about sweethearts, soon replaced the patriotism with a crippling sense of dread. The trauma of being forced into battle and watching your friends and relatives around you die soon eclipsed the lauded emotions that so many had espoused on the day of signing up. Injuries and death, mangled corpses and detached limbs, profuse bleeding and drowning in clouds of poison gas, was the fate that awaited too many of those that signed up. It was above the imagination of the majority to believe that such a fate awaited them. The sense of adventure lulled many a young man into a fatal illusion of invincibility and pride. Artillery would obliterate entire groups of men, barbed wire would snag and pull out one's insides, and the endless danger and relentless stress would fray the nerves of some to a point that running away became the only course, for which the punishment of execution awaited them. After years of this suffering, new ideas began to creep in, new technologies were tested and some proved a boon to one's fortunes. New commanders tested the limits of what was known and sought to gain the victory faster with new offensives, based on ill-conceived intelligence and a poor understanding of tactics. Soon the soldiers themselves would demand better conditions, and after disciplinary actions were taken, it was accepted that the time had come to attempt to better the terms of service. But such measures did little to reduce the influx of dead and dying men, or lessen the burden on the walking wounded. The expected naval confrontation between Germany and Britain was reduced to a single battle which changed nothing about the blockade of Germany that would significantly contribute to the eventual downfall of that country during the war. As one aspect of total war, the mass starvation of citizens was sadly not experienced only by Germany. Russia and Austria-Hungary also lost their share of men to simple conditions that simple remedies could have cured. Russia's participation underwhelmed all but her greatest admirers, as her statesmen, so apparently eager to get involved in the first place, proved utterly oblivious to any understanding of tactics or any knowledge of the realities of the situation. After the initial enthusiasm evaporated and its people were forced to join the legions of men that were being wasted on the Eastern Front, popular discontent in Russia, began to simmer and eventually explode in revolution. When the revolution did not take Russia out of the war and the losses continued, another revolution, this one far more significant, absolved Russia of the war and transformed the country into the world's first communist state. It was to become the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, a perpetrator of some of the worst crimes against humanity seen in the 20th century. Russia's spiral into revolution gave all in Europe pause for thought, and gave Germany the final chance to launch an all-out offensive in the West that was to prove ultimately unsuccessful. Buoyed by the influx of American soldiers, the Allies now settled for nothing less than complete surrender, and an adherence to a stringent and unnecessary set of terms that aimed at portraying Germany as solely responsible for Europe's four years of agony. Far from ending the war favourably for France and Britain, it ensured that it didn't leave the consciousness of Germany's citizens, and the residual anger and myths, perpetrated by those who didn't and couldn't accept the state's military loss, would then become susceptible to an even more dangerous idea, and arguably an even worse second war within a generation. The First World War killed at least 9 million people, with some estimates as high as 16 million, and most accepting that the figure falls somewhere in between. Unlike previous conflicts, this war saw most deaths occur on the battlefield, but the civilian suffering was still shockingly acute, thanks mostly to the presence of total war and the aforementioned genocides. A figure of 37 million casualties has been suggested, with 20 million of these counting as wounded, or the essential walking dead victims of the trauma that had consumed them whole. It killed on a scale impossible to comprehend or to do justice to with words. It created the atmosphere and conditions for the worst pandemic seen since the Black Death to then kill as many as 50 million people, the Spanish Flu. The world that greeted Europe in 1919 was thus changed utterly by the war and the resulting loss. As Versailles presented the war bell for Germany to pay, the rest of the world was itching to present itself to new ideas. Independence, the end of empire, sovereignty, ideology, equality, universal suffrage, all were ideas espoused by those desperate to find some significance in the loss. When it began in early August 1914, following a month of diplomatic meandering and failures that constituted the greatest series of blunders, misunderstandings, and crimes perpetrated by statesmen perhaps ever seen in history, A common claim was that it could not, would not last long, because the circumstances of the time would ensure that either money or men, or the will to fight, would run out within a year at the very most. When it was over and the states of the world looked back at the stain on civilization that they had just played a part in perpetrating, it became common to claim that no other war could possibly measure up to its newly established benchmarks of loss and suffering. It was imperative, these statesmen claimed, that we understand what had happened so that nothing like it ever happened again. It was a war so horrendous, so fundamentally earth-shattering, that the common man reasoned it could not happen again. The First World War had been the war to end all wars, because no other war would now be capable of coming after it, because it wasn't within humanity to do what it had just done again, because mankind had learned its lesson and would never venture into such territory again. However, perhaps the most tragic fact of all is the legacy that the war left behind. Its legacy was neither one of less or no war, but more war. The Great War would soon become the First World War, meaning that far from being the war to end all wars, the war that began in late summer 1914 was in fact the war to begin all wars. The 20th century was just beginning, but it would prove to be the most tragic, traumatic and horrendous in human history, in terms of lives lost crimes perpetrated, and suffering endured. It was a century we are still living with the consequences of today, and its train of events began in the rooms, ideas, and dreams of the statesmen, who upheld that war was a sole way of responding to events during the July crisis.